Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash deathdyingpod. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is also brought to you by BarkBox.com. Get one free extra month of BarkBox at getbarkbox.com slash deathdyingpod. You're listening to the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Two years. Two goddamn years, can you believe it? When I launched this show in July 2016, two years seemed like an eternity. An eternity I would never get to. No way I'd be able to write enough stuff to make 24 episodes, and no way I'd have any listeners even if I did. But you know what? I was proved wrong. So, I've written 46 stories for the show so far. This episode, episode 24 of Death, Dying, and Other Things, has story 47. I really can't believe that so many of you tune in for every episode. And I especially can't believe that more of you join in every single month. This kind of support is something I could have only dreamed of two years ago, and I'm truly, truly thankful to every single one of you. What was your favorite story? I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. Way back in episode one, I told a little story called I'm Not Laughing, and the punchline of that story still gives me chills. If you haven't listened to that one, go ahead and cue it up. It's worth it. So what's the next two years of death, dying, and other things going to look like? Will I be able to keep this pace? Will I ever run out of ideas? You'll have to keep tuning in to find out. But this month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, a single story told through ten of a captain's audio journals. In a small and heavy chamber, an exploratory mission to the reaches of the solar system goes wrong. Death and dying, the thresholds between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Modern Horrors Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. Captain's Log, May 18, 2213-1300. We have reached Neptune and settled into our orbit around the gas giant. To think we are the first humans to gaze down on the planet with our own eyes, the thought fills me with a great sense of pride and purpose. It is an honor that for most of my life, I felt would be impossible by the time I commanded spec missions myself. 
when the first system planet exploratory command missions were launched from Mars and began to prod into the outer solar system, I was only a boy. When Rachel Proud reached Jupiter 40 years ago, I celebrated with the rest of the inner system. When Trish Bradley reached Saturn in 2180, I began to worry, and when Ryan Frost reached Uranus four short years later, I was sure that if any large body was left to explore with human eyes and hands, it would be some minor moon of Saturn, some afterthought, a hunk of resources and nothing more. But then spec funding dried up for a full 20 years, and now here I am, at the helm of Perseus Seven and in command of seven crew, looking down at the streaking blue atmosphere of this far-flung planet from the viewport of my quarters. It is beyond my wildest dreams, beyond all hopes I had for this life or any. It is the culmination of all of my life's effort. My crew has earned a day of rest. We will commence work in 24 hours. Captain's Log, May 18th, 2213-1730. My cruise day off was short-lived. 20 minutes ago, I was requested to the bridge by Starmaster Mitchell Morris and arrived there to find both himself and helmswoman Patty Shea away from the wheel and staring out of the Perseus 7's large front viewport. Initially, I was annoyed assuming they had called me there to see the view of Neptune that I could enjoy perfectly well from my quarters. But then, Starmaster Morris pointed to a spot on the far side of the planet's equator from our current position. It was hard to see at first, and took several attempts by both Starmaster Morris and Helmswoman Shea to get my eye fixed at the proper position. Then, they brought what we were looking at up on the monitor. Once they did that, I'll tell you, my stomach did a flip. What had just appeared over the horizon, on roughly our same orbital plane, was an object exactly 5,000 meters across. It rotates counterclockwise at a speed of about 12 knots, which led me to believe it was not an as-of-yet undiscovered naturally occurring satellite of Neptune. Reinforcing this theory was the absolute perfect shape of the object. It resembles two pyramids joined at the base, forming an eight-sided diamond. An octahedron, I was told. Octahedron. What an esoteric word. The thing is made of stone, and when I say made, I don't mean constructed. It's not formed of giant blocks like the pyramids that were at Giza. It doesn't seem to be carved either. If it was, any marks that might confirm this theory are long gone. This object orbiting Neptune is of such perfect construction, with such sharp edges and corners, it makes obvious its artificial construction, but maddeningly offers no hints of its constructor. I have given the order to close the gap between us and the object, settle in close, and then we will try to try to learn more about it. Captain's Log, May 19th, 
We arrived alongside the object, which we've taken to simply calling the octahedron for brevity's sake. There were quite a few names suggested, the diamond, the object, the structure, to name a few on the more normal descriptive side, the anomaly, the new moon of Neptune, the monolith on the more ominous side. I selected the octahedron because it is simply true that and that there's no reason to sensationalize things amongst our small crew until we know more about it. We kept Perseus 7 at a distance at first, allowing our instruments to scan the octahedron. There's no sign of anything living, and our computers were telling us that the octahedron was made of a solid slab of simple granite, and as such, our radar does not penetrate it. We moved closer, slowly, with small amounts of thrust to inch across the expanse of space. Getting up alongside the octahedron produced the biggest puzzle yet. As I mentioned in my last log, the octahedron's sides are perfectly straight. Its corners are perfectly sharp. It's not made of blocks of granite. It's not carved. There are no tool marks. It's as if this solid object, this massive eight-sided thing, was simply teleported by wizards out of some larger piece of granite deep in some far-off planet, maybe even Earth. N.G. Anders tells me that granite can only form on planets with geological activity and lots of it at that. How does this perfect piece of solid granite find its way to Neptune's orbit? And how long has it been here? In any case, I've asked the crew to work in shifts over the next day or so, running any tests or scans or anything that might help illuminate this mystery. Captain's Log, May 19th, 2213-1800. The crew has shown me an anomaly in the octahedron's outer shell. Starwoman Kilgore spotted a shallow square recess in one of its northern faces. It appears to be the only one, the only irregularity on all eight of its faces. Our other tests over the last 12 hours or so have yielded nothing. It seems that the octahedron is just a solid, inert, if humongous, hunk of granite that just happens to be floating in orbit above the furthest planet from the sun. <laughs> the more I say it, the crazier it sounds. Captain's Log, May 20th, 2213 The matter of the shallow recess on the octahedron ate at me all night. If the rest of the thing is perfect, smooth, sharp, what is it doing there? The most remarkable thing about this object, of course, is the fact that it's even here to begin with. And that is a mystery that we will never solve, I'd wager. How to get here? Where is it from? Questions we'll never answer, if I were to guess. But the second most remarkable thing about that object is the damn recess. That damn imperfection. 
If that blemish was not on one of the octahedron's northern faces, we could happily remain in the dark about this object. Faced with the reality that it's there, we could speculate endlessly about its origins. Scientists could bloviate. Civilians, once they learned of it, could formulate conspiracies surrounding it. In fact, it might be better that way. To pose a question with no answer. It could, and would, ignite imaginations throughout the system. It would become one of existence's great mysteries. Right next to, why are we here, would sit, what is the octahedron, and where is it from? And an added perk would be that my name would be attached to that question. But there's that damn flaw, that damn recess. That's going to be the question that dominates the conversation, if we don't figure out what it is. Captain's Log, May 20th, 2213-0900. Over breakfast, I posed the question to the crew of how to answer the question of the square depression in that stone. After some brief chatter, Starman Green suggested a spacewalk may be the simplest way to investigate, and an informal poll found that the crew was in agreement for once. Starwoman Kilgore volunteered for the spacewalk, and I agreed. I would have given her the option of first deferral anyway, since she was the one who spotted the damn thing in the first place. She'll go in five hours. Captain's Log, May 20th, 2213-1610. Kilgore's mission was a success, but not without its problems and not without its strangeness. We pulled Perseus 7 in close so that her walk to the octahedron would be short, and she arrived without issue. That's when the trouble began. As she made contact with the octahedron, impacting the stone face harder than she meant to, the wind was knocked out of her and she rebounded off of it. We scrambled to help her on the bridge as best we could. Kilgore was disoriented and took a moment to catch her breath, but we were relieved when she recovered quickly before she reached the end of her tether and jetted back to the octahedron. In the chaos, we hadn't seen what had happened to the octahedron, the recess, the small square indent had opened. It had been a hatch, and now it was open, and Kilgore could just look inside. Which she did. And what she reported back was that there was a tunnel, a passageway, pitch dark, leading straight into the octahedron. She placed her hands just inside the tunnel and reported that the stone seemed to be vibrating. The vibration was soothing, she said. After a brief pause, she said she was going in, and despite the shouting from us over the comms and my ordering her not to, she did. We lost contact with her almost immediately. The next two hours were filled with the officers and I discussing the possibility of a rescue mission, and then making preparations for the rescue mission, before Starwoman Rach Kilgore appeared back in the airlock. 
Now I want to read from the debrief between Kilgore and comm officer Lisa Fitzpatrick. Why'd you go in there, H? Why did you go into that thing when you were being explicitly ordered not to by Commander Randalls? Kilgore, I don't know. I couldn't help myself. Once I had touched the stone walls, those vibrations, they just made me feel so good. I couldn't help myself. Fitzpatrick, how long before you had lost contact with us? From our perspective, it was a matter of moments after you had entered the tunnel. Kilgore, yeah, your shouting cut out almost immediately. Fitzpatrick, okay, so what happened once you were inside? Kilgore, I scurried down that passageway for a while, and then I came to an interior chamber. Fitzpatrick, a chamber. Kilgore, yeah, it was kind of spectacular. It looked like a treasure room of some sort. Everything sparkled. Everything shined. Fitzpatrick, does it seem like a craft? Kilgore, like a ship? Fitzpatrick, yes. Kilgore, no, it's not a ship. Fitzpatrick, Kilgore, what's in your eyes? Kilgore, what do you mean? We've put Kilgore in the brig for now. Captain's Log, May 20th, 2213-1930. I cannot stop thinking about what Kilgore said was inside the octahedron. The treasure, or however she put it. These could be artifacts from a civilization that is not our own, the first ever. Actual evidence of a civilization that did not originate on the planet Earth. I would be a hero if we could recover some of that. Captain's Log, May 21st, 2213-0800. I have decided that I have to see this treasure room for myself. It is only fair that I be the one to bring the first of it back. They'll call it the Randall's Find. My name will be in the history books, not only as the commander of the mission that explored the Neptune system, but also the one that proved we are not alone in the universe. It is just incredible. Captain's Log, May 21st, 2213, 11.45. I have returned from a successful mission. It's hard to describe what I saw, but I will try. When I reached the hatch of the stone octahedron, it slid open on its own, just as it had with Starwoman Kilgore. Before me was a lightless stone passageway, impossible to say how long. I told Fitzpatrick to give me as long as it had taken Kilgore to re-emerge, and then she was to mount a rescue, but that it would probably not be necessary. 
I would enter the structure just to confirm what Kilgore had told us, and then be to hasty retreat. That was the plan anyway. But I would be sure to grab a few artifacts from the room. The passageway was narrow enough that once my suit's thrusters had delivered my body to the entranceway, I could use the palms of my hands to brace and then pull my frame into the octahedron. Placing my hands against the smooth stone walls, I confirmed the first of Kilgore's story. The stone, itself, seemed to resonate, vibrating in a low frequency. The contact with the stone transferred the vibration into my body, sending waves of tremors through my extremities and into my trunk. And Kilgore was right. While the complete conversion of the resonance from the stone octahedron to my person felt odd, it also felt profoundly good, pleasurable. The pleasing sensation seemed to subconsciously pull me forward, and before long, I was relishing each and every placement of my gloved hands along this stone passageway. I can't recall how long this trip was. I lost contact with Perseus 7 within seconds of entering the tunnel, and I lost myself for a great stretch of time to the waves of pleasure coming from the stone. This was made easier because the only sense that was available to me in those moments was touch. There was no light to see by, no transmissions from Perseus 7 to hear. I was left in the dark with nothing but vibrating stone. At some point, I saw the literal light at the end of the tunnel. A soft, cold, and pale glow spilling into the stone passageway some hundred meters in front of me. I picked up my pace, lulled into an almost trance-like state by the resonance, eager to see the secrets Kilgore said this stone structure held. Above all, though, I was receptive, receptive to whatever was ahead. The vibrations had aligned my mind and body with my surroundings. It had changed my attitudes about the mission. I no longer treated it as a simple fact-finding expedition. Something told me I was in for more than that. Something tickled at the back of my mind as I pulled myself along those last few meters. Reaching the end of the passageway, I spilled into the chamber, impacting hard against the solid stone floor. I hadn't expected the sudden gravity. Kilgore hadn't mentioned that in her debrief. It became clear immediately that Kilgore had left out or altered the majority of her experience in that octahedron as soon as I looked up from the floor after pulling myself together. The chamber there was small, like she said, but that's where her account stopped being accurate. The small stone room was a sphere no more than a couple meters by a couple meters. The floor, which I had fell to when I exited the passageway, was flat. The chamber was evenly lit by a soft, cold light, but I could see no light source, no explanation for the uniform glow 
The only other feature of the room besides me was a low stone platform about the size of a cot. A panel slid shut behind me, closing off my access to the tunnel out of the octahedron. I rushed over to where I thought it was, but the hatch was so perfectly fit that it blended completely into the wall. I ran my hands around the entirety of the room, feeling for an inconsistency, looking for the way out, but I couldn't find one. My heart rate began to pick up, and perhaps in response to my body's panic, the resonance of the stone around me changed pitch slightly to match my heart's increased beating, and then surpassed it, and like a firm hand gently calming a partner, the vibration did that to my body. My heart rate dropped back to normal levels, my anxiety at being possibly trapped here was eased, and I slowly began to feel comfortable once again. I sighed out the last remainder of my nerves, and with perfect timing, the stone platform in front of me responded by raising up to about waist height. I, of course, laid down. I felt the stone give way around my body, embracing me. No, not embracing me, cradling me. The stone of that platform became the most comfortable bed I'd ever laid in. The stone's resonance pitched down as I settled in, and I felt bliss. My eyes fluttered closed for a moment. My eyelids were heavy and I was unable to control them. When I opened my eyes again, a small aperture had opened in the ceiling above me, and slowly, a thick blue liquid began to drip from the ceiling onto my body. It pressed into my chest, holding me down with its deceptive weight, but I did not fight it. I did not panic. I could feel its warmth through my suit, and I did not want to move to avoid it. I let it wash over me, welcoming it. It slid over me, dripping to the floor around me. It found the valves of my suit and forced its way inside. I felt the blue liquid spread inch by inch across my skin. The warmth seeped into me, warming my blood, then my muscles, then seemingly my soul. It filled the suit, building up around me, taking the place of all the breathable air, and yet I did not recoil. When it reached my nose, I blacked out. I came to in the airlock. Re-entering Perseus 7, I was rushed by N.G. Anders, who had opened the airlock for me. I waved him off and felt something bubble in my mind. A long dormant memory, or new knowledge, I couldn't tell which. In the memory, or the knowledge, or whatever it is, I was, I am, I will be. It's one of those, but I don't know. I'm above the methane clouds of Neptune. I believe I am in mid-jump, and this is confirmed when I descend back into the clouds and then glide, or swim, among them. 
I don't have control of my eyes or my head, so I cannot get a good look at my body, but I feel not human. The trip through the clouds is long, but at a certain point the clouds break. It is dark down here beneath the clouds of Neptune. My eyes, though, can see through the darkness and far below me, I see it. I see hundreds of figures just like me also descending toward the mass, impacting it at full speed, and then sinking into it like sinking into a pit of tar. And I can feel it, deep in my stomach, a craving to do the same, a longing to sink into that deep sorrow, to be among the rest. Com Officer Fitzpatrick arrived at my side and pulled me out of my memory by asking how it went. That feeling in my stomach, that longing for home, though, did not recede. Fitzpatrick asked me if I was ready to be debriefed, and I told her yes. She walked me to the debriefing room, and I gave the same story Kilgore did, corroborating her every detail. Then, I excused myself and returned here to my room. Kilgore is on her way here now, too. I released her from the brig. I can sense her moving through Perseus 7. We both understand that we must talk. We must discuss how best to proceed. We must decide who will be next to experience that small and heavy chamber. Or perhaps we will simply lower the ship into the planet now. I don't know how long I can wait. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The story, A Small and Heavy Chamber, was written by me too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Eight-Sided Dice and to Gas Giants. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Check out the other shows, they're great. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows.